Welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks, a podcast. It's our way in the Roxbury School community of informing parents and our community members about great initiatives we have going on, partnerships, and other programs that we offer really to help open the lines of communication between our school staff, our students, our community members, and everyone who might be interested in the amazing things that are happening here in Roxbury Public Schools. So today we actually have a follow-up of a previous episode. We recorded an episode a little while ago about neurodiversity. We started to dive into what that means how the school district works to support uh, youngsters who have individualized needs in this area. Particularly, we touched a little bit on ABA and what applied behavior analysis is. We also talked about some of the strategies we can use and recommendations we would make um, when you're out in public or when you're in a school setting about how you can support and embrace the individual needs of everyone. Um, I do remember we also talked a little bit about the um, acknowledging and celebrating the fact that there are different sensitivities and different needs everyone has. This is not something that is unique or confined. We all have uh, our own uh, our own needs that we would hope everyone would appreciate. So today we're going to follow up a little bit more. And so before I tell you all of what we're going to talk about today, beyond this is part two of our neurodiversity, I'm going to say series now because maybe... And everyone I'm looking at is like, oh, no, does that mean I'm back? <laughs> um, you know, perhaps we can continue this conversation because this is sef- definitely something that would benefit um, everyone who, who can listen, because this is something that is, you know, research is developing and evolving on. And it's just a great skill set and appreciation, understanding to have for those around us. So before I go any further, I would ask everyone to introduce yourself and tell us what what your role is here in our school district. All right. My name is James. Uh, I have two kids in the district right now, uh, one neurotypical um, and one who is classified. Um, And he's been at Nixon, gosh, since the uh, since the preschool program. Yeah. And I'm Laura. I'm uh, the other parent of our two wonderful children. And yeah, Robert's been here since uh, he was three. I'm Jen Perez. I'm one of the district behaviorists, and I have the um, pleasure of being able to work with Robert and his lovely family. And I am Christine O'Connor. I am the Tides first through fourth grade teacher at Nixon School, and Robert is my lovely student in my classroom. All right, so I'm going to start with Ms. Prez. Uh, she's our in-resident expert. Oh, um, that's that's a big big shoes to fill, but okay. Well, they're Go your ahead. shoes. <laughs> okay. So they should fit, oh, yeah, all so right. So they should fit perfectly. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, it's like Cinderella, maybe. Well, there you go. So um, Ms. Prez was here and really shared a lot of great information with us in our last episode. So let's start there. Let's just kind of recap a little bit. What does, in case... In case someone didn't have time to listen to both episodes. How dare they? Uh, well, and so maybe they'll take that as an opportunity to pause this one and, and go, go back. back. And yeah. go back. Right? Yeah. So they can get started. Sorry about my voice if you do that. I, 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 recording no. my voice, no good. Okay, still, go ahead. Still, it, still, <laughs> it still sounds like you and it's perfect. Um, so it would be like starting a book in chapter three or chapter two, but it's okay. So let's go back, talk a little bit about what does, when we say neurodiversity um, or neurotypical, what does that mean? Um what does that mean to someone who doesn't have an educational background? We'll try and use language that anyone listening could appreciate and understand. And give us a little bit of a recap of some of the the strategies and ways that a school district and just members of the public could could work to um, 
grow in their understanding and appreciation of the needs of others, as well as to support anyone who's around them, whether they be, as the word was used, neurotypical or perhaps neurodivergent, although I would claim we're all a little neurodivergent, and that does exist on a scale. Absolutely. Right? That does exist on a continuum. So let's let's just do that as, as a means of review. Okay, so um, hopefully I, I hit all of your points there, Dr. Seip. Um, but we we met last time, um, and if you guys go back and listen to the podcast, you'll you'll hear us talking about what neuro, neurodiversity is, um, which is not a new concept, right? I think we talked about that last time, um, and that's just the idea that you know we're our brains are all wired differently. There's um, sort of a spectrum of abilities and and um, sensitivities and the way our our minds and bodies work and um you know we don't view that as there's something quote unquote wrong with an individual or that you know as a school district that we need to change that person to fit into sort of a a predetermined box um it's as a school district what we're trying to do what our programs are trying to do is support all of our students with their individual needs looking at their individual strengths um and being able to give them the skills in a in a way that um, works for them in a format that works for them based on all of the data. I mean, we can't have a show like this and not talk about data, um, but using that data to inform what we're doing and to really grow on um, on, like I said, their strengths and abilities. So I hope I I kind of covered everything there. You did. And I think it's a great way to get started talking about data. So let's start within the school confines. Um, I love the fact that we have teacher and parents here to talk about that because that's a huge communication point, right? Um, as one of the things school districts do regularly is collect and analyze data, which as a former math teacher, that's something I really like to do. But I know when you say those words, some people cringe and run the other way. Um, but one of, the, it, one of the most foundational components to establishing and developing and then implementing, supporting and adapting to the needs of students and the development of a program is that collection and analysis of data, particularly as it pertains to the student's individualized education plan in this instance, and their goals and objectives that are are directly connected to what we're working on. So let's start in the classroom, Ms. O'Connor. Like, talk to us about what does that mean as you're hearing um, Ms. Prez talk about collection of data and analysis of it to support students. How's that work in the classroom, and how's that conversation loop and communication with the parents work towards that continuous commitment to growth improvement recognizing not every day is a home run right sometimes we do the old two steps forward one step back happens because we're working with little humans mm -hmm. and we all that's a part of just kind of the general human condition is we get a little bit better sometimes we stumble sometimes we struggle and that's part of what life looks like all right that's a lot of information you want me to cover um so i would say first of all Having data is not something that is specific to just the special education realm. All teachers collect a ton of data on their students, whether you know they're they're reading, they're writing, their math skills. It's no different in our classrooms. We're just taking data on different types of things. Maybe we're taking data on uh, behaviors. We might be taking data on following directions. Uh, there's just all sorts of different things in addition to those academic skills. As far as the communication goes, I know I personally send communications home to my parents daily. A lot of the students in my program have challenges with the communication. So they can't go home and express to their parents what their day was like or tell them what they did during that day or if they had challenges or if they had successes. 
they're not able to communicate that. So I think that that's my biggest um, responsibility is to have those communications with the parents so that at any given moment, these parents understand this is what my child did today. So let's talk about what that looks like. So you get the communication from the school, which shares on, on a regular basis. In Miss O'Connor's instance, it's daily. Sometimes it's less frequent. Sometimes it's more frequent. How do you use that information to communicate back to the school to support your child and you know continue that daily growth process? Yeah, we've always been really, really um, uh, open with our communication with the teachers and with Miss Perez and with everyone involved because it's a two-way street. So if something happened last night, you know, Robert didn't sleep well. He was up at 3 a.m., which has happened two nights in a row. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, <laughs> and he goes to school and he's having behaviors. I want them to know there's a reason behind yeah. it, that it's not, you know, necessarily the, the work that he's doing or someone bothering him. He just didn't sleep well. So we take your information and we use that at home to give to his home providers as well as us to say, you know, he had this happening at school, so this could be a consequence of that. And we go back and forth a lot. Perfect. And so as we utilize that, how does that information on an ongoing basis build so that we can develop and design a program that supports continual growth, recognizing that sometimes, and let's be fair, it happens to all of us, today isn't our best day. You know, how do we learn from that experience and make tomorrow, hopefully, a little bit better than today? Well, I mean, it would help if you slept. That would make tomorrow a lot better than today. Um, I'm not <laughs> but we, I think we can learn from the data that you've given us and that we've given you. We can see what common problems we're having at home and school. What can we come together and work on? Put things in place at school that will help with those transitions and then carry that over at home to see where we can take exactly what you guys are doing and make it generalized across the board. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, oh, I'm sorry. No, you're surprised. I think that's something that we do very well um, in our programs is that we take that information that comes from the parents, we combine that with what we're seeing in the classroom, and then that's when I pull in Mrs. Perez and say, listen, this is what we're seeing. How? What direction should we go in from here to help both home and school? I think from my perspective too, because I'm not in the classroom every day, it's, it's cool to have a, a sort of different I guess, point of view on all of it, but to see when it comes together well, when when the teacher's communicating um, daily or whatever that looks like, and the parents are too, I think that is huge. That's where we find, as a, as a school district, the most benefit for our learners when we're all sort of working together for that same common goal of supporting the student, in this case, your child. <laughs> and so, and in that effort of communicating effectively together and supporting the child in particular, you know, we're talking about one child here, but you know, that kind of pattern of a commitment to the growth and development of each child. What we need to also understand is that while we have routines and reinforcements, reinforcers that are put in place as a part of individual programs here, um, oftentimes, in, in my opinion, too frequently, and I think I might have said this last time, we refer to that as an effort to prepare a child for the real world. Um, the reality is this is the real world. And so from, let's just call it eight to three, they're here in a school building, but that's only a little piece of life, right? There's a lot more hours outside of the school uh, school day that we need to prepare not only students, but parents with um, skills to continue to implement routines and reinforcers. So let's talk about that a little bit because you know, to a certain degree within the confines of a school, we have the ability to implement that with with some fidelity because you don't have um, 
the 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 latitude and variables that could impact yeah. um, impact any one particular person, whether it be the parents, child, siblings, or quite frankly, those around us, someone in the supermarket, someone right just out on the soccer field or something like that. So let's talk about how do we transition those pieces of support beyond the school walls, quite also frankly, student there are a lot of supports that schools can provide personnel, people like Ms. O'Connor, right? Um, like Ms. Perez, that aren't there all the time at home. How does that communication like translate into the rest of time, right? Beyond outside of school. So one of the things that we do here in the school to sort of help address a lot of those skills that happen outside the walls of the school building, we were just talking about um, before here, uh, is community-based instruction. So we have a lot of skills that, you know, we cannot replicate within the walls of the building that are just as important for our students to learn. Um, and I think, you know, with, with this set of parents, they are, are so involved and we're, we're able to um, meet and touch base periodically and talk about those specific goals that we're working on here and what they can do. They always want to, you know, know what can we do to carry this over at home? Um, how can we implement these goals at home? So I think that's a really big component um, as well. It's funny because I look at eight to three as a huge part of the day. I always have. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, I guess when you have a, a child with special needs, you know, it, it really eight to three. Yes, that's a lot of hours, depending on what those behaviors look like. Um, but, you know, something like I mean, when we talk about community haircuts, something yes. that might seem so simple um, to so many families, um, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it can be a struggle sometimes for, um, uh, for families who have, uh, kids with special needs, um, that haircut could go really well, or that haircut could go really, uh, really, <laughs> really bad. So just having something like that in place is, is huge. Um, definitely. Uh, we also, in addition to the team we have at school, Robert also has a stellar at home uh, yeah. behavioral team as well. And Ms. Perez has been amazing and they've been amazing with working together and carrying programs over that Robert's working at school to things that we can do at home. Um, we've been able to, and it sounds to a neurotypical family or a family that has neurotypical children doing something like going to the supermarket. It's an everyday thing. Like you just do it, right? You don't even think about it with Robert. And I can only speak to Robert cause he's the only neurodiverse <laughs> child we have. Um, it's an adventure. To say the very least, you know, and what we've noticed is last time we went to Wegmans at 10 o'clock um, on a Sunday morning, which is like the oh worst my. time to go, period. Yeah, yeah which yeah. I don't like. <laughs> and he was able yeah. to. For someone who's neurotypical. Right. Yes, I'm right. not sure I what wouldn't you guys exactly were call me neurotypical, but, like, <laughs> um, but we were able to take him and he walked around and we did a whole full week's worth of food shopping and he only grabbed one pepper and a handful yeah. of rubber, bands rubber bands out of a yeah. bag. <laughs> And it's because of the things that he's done with school that that makes that possible. So, I, I mean, I'm taking notes as we're talking because there's things I want to follow up on. And we're set up right now for a three-hour conversation. <laughs> you guys know. That's fair warning for everyone. So, let's since you, we transitioned there into the beyond the school walls after my comment about the 8 to 3, you talk about something which many people take for granted, for the haircut, right? You give that example, you, the visitation to the supermarket. And I think that um, the staff here in our school district has done a really great job 
K through eight of in, or K through twelve rather of integrating CBI, which is that community based instruction. How do we go outside of the schools? Because as Ms. Prez said really well, we can't replicate beyond the school walls in the school walls sometimes, and we need to go out in the community. We need to give students opportunities to interact in what would be a genuine setting. Um, and so I'm really glad that we had that conversation because it also goes back to something we talked about last time, which is. Uh, growing in an appreciation for the sensitivity of others. Now, some have described me as unnecessarily loud at all <laughs> times. Um, and so I mention that because that's a sensitivity for people, right? That volume, the, the touch of a haircut, right? That's really personal. Um, but it's become most folks, most people, it's just a part of the regular routine, right? I got to get a haircut, right? cutting fingernails, toenails, things like that, that can be really sensitive. Um, you talk about being in the supermarket, touching something, um, you know, like there are things that the brain is curious about, right? And you want to interact with them. But if, if I'm the other person walking down the aisle in the supermarket and I see a child like just grabbing produce, I'm going to have a response. I'm going to have a reaction. And let's be fair, that runs a spectrum also of judgmental, right? Mm -hmm. it reinforcing, supportive, um, from anything from a look to a sigh to a comment under the breath to a loud interaction. Uh, let's talk about that. So as a family, you have a lot of supports within the school. You great, give great kudos to your outside of the school team as well. But let's be fair, they're not with you in that right. moment in the supermarket. They're not with you at the barbershop. What's, what sort of... Uh, whether this is advice for those around you or support for other parents or both, how do we how do we help others grow in their appreciation, understanding that everyone we interact with is different than ourselves, right? On that spectrum, how how, do, how can we support people with their response and reaction when they see something they're not accustomed to? Right. Um, you know, I think for the most part, and I I think this goes for all neurodiverse parents is that we're all just doing the best we can. You know, like I don't want him to grab that apple out of your shopping cart as much as you don't want him to, <laughs> you know? Can we just, let's just pause and soak that in because I'm not sure every like that is so plainly and perfectly put, yeah. right? Like that's just as challenging, if not more so situation for you than the other person. Yes. Yes. And I'm not sure I would even stop to think that. So right. you said that so wonderfully. I don't want that moment to pass because that's just as challenging, if not more so for you right. than the other person. And we will do everything we can in our power to make it right but it's not it's not bad parenting right you know it's not that he didn't hear no enough or we haven't been strict enough with him and I'm sure a lot of neurodiverse parents have heard that you know that you're just it's your parenting style and that's the way this child is the way he is like it's it's not and we're all we're just doing the best we can and just a little bit of patience a little bit of grace goes a long way I love it I don't even remember what I was gonna say but <laughs> I mean there are days where you know yeah, he he just wants that apple. That's yeah. really what it boils down to. And sometimes I'm not quick enough to redirect him to stop him from getting that apple. He's very fast sometimes. And there's days, you know, as a parent where you can kind of you can brush it, brush it off, shrug your shoulders and, you know, move forward and not even think about it again. There's days where you're like, oh, man, that was really that was a rough trip to the old supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> but but I want to say I think that every parent, even those of neurotypical children, you need to take a step back and also realize that you also have those days. I have two neurotypical children who went through Roxbury and I remember when they were little and they had a meltdown in the middle of a restaurant and I had to pick them up and we had to leave. So it's those behaviors and those reactions are not something that's only a neurodiverse reaction. 
all people react to that. I've had a time where I've walked in the store during, you know, holiday shopping and people bump into me and I'm like, I got to get out of here. I'm done. Like, I can't handle you people anymore. I need to leave. And it's okay. Everybody has their own reactions. And I, I, as you guys are talking about that, I think about something as simple and common as like road rage, right? Like you never know what, you never know what someone else is working with. And so you, you mentioned a little bit of grace and a little bit of patience goes a long way. And I really think that if, if, well, although we still have plenty of things to talk about, like if, if you, if a listener of this episode hears nothing else, hear that here, because that's just such a great thing for life. Just a great, a way to make our world a better place. A little bit of patience, a little bit of grace goes a long way. And I can admit as, as an educator, as a parent, just as a person, I frequently have, frequently, I'm okay and confident and comfortable saying that, that I frequently have to say to those around me, my children, right? To myself, today's not my best day. I just need to take a step back. I just need to take a breather. I just need to try and center myself a little bit because things happen, right? Like today is just not my best day for whatever reason. Allow yourself the space to be in that position, but also... We, that road, that's a two-way street, right? Like we don't, it is unfair for us personally to expect others to demonstrate that grace and patience to us when we are unwilling um, to, to offer it to others. So I, I, I think that's a really great point that if, you, if we learn nothing else, let's learn that, that in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an effort to make the world a better place, how do we demonstrate what we expect? You know, we used to call that the golden rule. I don't know if we still, if that's something we talk about, but like, how do we treat others? So um, let's, let's go back to the, um, a little bit to what we were doing with the, um, the connections between home and school, right? So how have, how has the school work to help prepare that situation? And I'm going to ask both sides, although it might be uh, unpopular to some, I we talked about this in our preparation dialogue. If what's gone right with the, the school's interactions and what, looking back, we're like, we could have done this other thing better because admittedly nothing is perfect, right? We're all working, we're all doing our best. So, um, what, what, as you reflect on the work with the school and continue to do, what could, what went well, what could have done better? And what would you say to fellow parents about how, if I'm a parent and I don't have the relationship you have described, right? How do I help cultivate that? How do I, I'm going to use a strong word intentionally. How do I demand that? of my partnership with my school. Maybe it's not Roxbury. Maybe it's just a school I live in or the way that my school supports my children. How do I command that relationship to be something that's positive as a parent? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think in our experience, you know, when Robert was beginning the program, when he came out of EI and it, this is just our experience. I don't know if it's typical across the, uh, the board, but as we were getting ready to transition, we got a lot of information from EI and from a lot of therapists that were like, you're going to have to fight for everything. The school is going to give you nothing, you know, and just there's tons of online that you can just go down rabbit holes and, you know, terrible things. And you are walking into that meeting prepared for a fight. And I think the first two years, that's how I felt. I was constantly on the defense when I realized that every single person that works with Robert loves him as much as I do and that we could work as a team. It completely changed the conversation. It became much more of a back and forth conversation and much less of a debate. So that's something I could have done differently that didn't go well for me. And I say I because James has always had a much more level head than I do. Um, <laughs> he, he's always been much more like calm down and I'm the one that that has a mess. Um, but you know, and, and demanding that it, it's not so beget, mm, sorry, respect begets respect. Right. So that's what our relationship, I hope 
with everyone is now where I'm going to tell you when it's a bad day. I'm going to understand everything you tell me and I'm going to take that and I'm going to give you the, the, the same respect back and, you know, let you know what's going on. And I, I just think that open communication and understanding where Robert's at and like we talked about before, kind of not challenging it, like seeing his 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 progress and saying like, well, no, he should be working harder. You should be doing more things with him. This is where he's at and accepting where he is and and where he can go is a big thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and in terms of, you know, how things have gone, I mean, just the empathy, the communication, the understanding. I mean, it's been so great over the years. Um, the hardest part, at least for me in the beginning, was when the school is evaluating your child. So are you. I mean, we we were still coming to terms with where he was at. Um, so it's, it's a difficult time, um, because, you know, you're, you're talking to doctors, you're talking to school personnel, you're talking to therapists, you're talking to early intervention because you're making that transition over. Um, and me in the meantime, you know, you are still, you know, working, you know, a full-time job. You're still trying to, you know, make sure everything's good for, you know, your neurotypical child. Um, you know, and you're trying to keep it together, but all in the same time coming to the realization that your child is special needs. Um, you know, so I think just kind of keeping that in mind when when a parent, a child is going through the evaluation process, just understanding where they're at, um, you know, is, is probably the most important thing. So I, I want to go. I'm going to take a lot of. So, again, I'm running out of space on my page. I'm about to move to a new page. Uh, and anyone who could see my notes page, they'd be like, I don't know how that makes any sense. To you. I can't even it's look like, at it. It's what one would call a stream of consciousness. It's good handwriting. I like it. So, um, Better than you, mine. you mentioned early intervention, which is what EI stands for. And it supports that are provided through local community agencies and uh, that are generally county driven um, to support youngsters who may be demonstrating um, whether it's a. Um, a slower development of receptive or expressive communication, a variety of needs, right? But early intervention, if you have a youngster who is, I believe it kind of begins at like month 18 after birth, up through the third annual year, if you have a, a youngster that you are concerned about the development, um, in particular communication, because that's the 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 really only thing you're gonna see um, you know, in, in that demonstrable way, there are resources publicly available that um, parents can access. So just to clarify what EI stands for. So um, the other thing that is important, and I just, I guess I'll say this as plainly as I can, and I do apologize in advance if it comes off brisk, but um, the way you describe it is contrary to what I think is probably a popular angle, which is fix the child, right? Like there is this expectation that is completely unfair and unrealistic um, and quite frankly, lacks the sensitivity and accuracy of the situation when early interventionists or even early elementary educators like Ms. O'Connor, Ms. Prez, like, well, how you like fix my child? Because we, we need to there's nothing wrong with them. Right. They're just not typical in the way you would expect them to behave, interact, communicate. Right. But this is who that student is. This is who that child is. And so how can the whole process and journey is how do we demonstrate, how do we develop a program to help them interact with the world in as a positive way as they can, preparing eventually, although it is a long game, for adult life. Um, and so I, I, I don't mean that to sound ab ab abrasive, but the, the mentality of like, well, why didn't you fix my kid? Is it that what that really roots from is this 
what 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 I believe people who feel that way are really feeling is this child doesn't accurately mirror the expectations I had from the beginning. How do you get them? The reality is, let's love this, who this child is, and let's work to to support them the best possible way we can. And so that um, that idea that there's a fix, we don't need to fix, right? We need to work together to to support and appreciate. Um, and so I think that it's important to talk about what early intervention is because there might be parents listening thinking, well, that's great. The school can do something. My kid's not school age yet. Right. Um, and so did I miss anything on EI? No, no, you got okay. it. No, yeah. I mean, Robert was Robert was born deaf. He has cochlear implants. So he has been getting EI since he was two months old because okay. with, with the hearing loss, he gets, you know, he we were able to qualify earlier. Right so let me ask this question because I did miss this. How did you access that? Like, So Robert <laughs> failed his newborn hearing test. Okay. Um, and then we went back five or six weeks later and they said he has significant hearing loss. We went, um, ended up at NYU getting a diagnosis. He has a severe profound in one ear and profound loss in the other ear. James, um, has a lot of information and knows a lot about, um, how kind of these different agencies work. So he really took the lead and contacted EI right away and we, we got hooked up with services, which was fantastic. Awesome. All right. So. Th those services are available and your local school district, whether you live in Roxbury or somewhere else, they can help point you in the right direction. If you're thinking, well, I don't have the access or the knowledge to those agencies, your school district can help point you in the right direction. And so you also mentioned going down the rabbit hole of the Internet. Um, and so I don't <laughs> oh, want to yeah. let that <laughs> listen. I mean, we, we talked about it last time, too. Yeah. A lot of the information that's out there and what the source of that is right. and and because you have you end up having so much information and then you go into the IEP meeting and you know absolutely nothing you have all of this knowledge but at the at the base of it you know nothing and, and you're all you're also still um trying to figure out where your kids at and and probably not even realizing that again we're you know we're talking about neurodiversity right we're there's a kid there's kids with all sorts of different needs all sorts of different issues and you're trying to process all that, you know? And, and so not only do you have that, as you, I like the way you put that, the rabbit hole that you go down with the internet, but there is that common feeling. I don't want, I, don't, I wanted to say misconception, but if I say misconception, that's dismissive of the reality that it does occur, that the school is going to give you nothing, right? Again, not necessarily us, even though some people may have that feeling. Um, that is the general consensus. Like I'm going to have to fight for every blessed thing with the school district and I do appreciate that your experience hasn't necessarily continued to be, although yeah. it may have started there, that feeling like we can work together, we can be a team, and that would be the hope. And I say, speak on behalf of school school administrators and educators, ever, we always want that to be the feeling. We want yeah. the feeling to be this is a partnership. We're all here for the child. And it's okay if we disagree or have differences of opinion. It's how do we resolve those feelings, keeping the child at the center of our, our conversation and our development of a plan. So. Yeah. How, uh, I, I guess the best, what the question I want to ask is how do, what could schools know about how to allay that fear for parents of like, I'm going to have to fight you on every step of the way we have to fight. Like we don't have to fight. How do we like, what could school districts do differently that would help that not be the case? Because when that's the case, we, it, it delays our ability to support the child because we have to get past that first hurdle that we've created as the grownups completely absent of who the child is. Yeah, I think just hearing our concerns and being able to explain in um, a very basic but logical way why or why not certain things can happen. Like I remember I asked for a lot of things for Robert and I got a lot of things. 
But some things, I think it was a couple of years ago, I think I wanted another speech session or something or another teacher of the deaf session. I forget what it was. And I talked about it with the team and everyone said, listen, like sh may, we might be able to fit it into the schedule, but if we take him out of the classroom for one more special, he's going to miss most of the, the day of the classroom. And in my head that, all right, I agree with you. Like that makes sense. That's fine. So I think just, just not saying no and kind of giving some explanation and some reasoning behind it goes a long way. And I mean, that couldn't have been any more clear. What I just heard you say, and this is really an important piece of of the partnership between schools and parents is two steps, right? It really is two steps. Step one, listen to me genuinely. Hear my concerns without waiting for your turn to talk, right? Actually listen, step one. Step two, we call that in elementary school active listening. <laughs> and we often invite the listener to tell us back what they heard us say, right? To provide evidence that, that we were actually listening. Um, and I can admit, even as an adult, I often have to um, exercise this skill. Um, but step two is explain in understandable language. And I think that is a huge issue professionally beyond schools is we use our language. We, we and I'll say, we'll come back to schools, educators use professional jargon that parents who are not educators don't have the translator for, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, we go to an accountant because I don't have that language. I go to a mechanic because I don't have that language. Uh, we rely on professionals because they have a language and a knowledge and a skill set that they're the experts. But when we speak to someone using language they don't understand, that is what some call a failure to communicate, right? We can't communicate effectively that way. So, I mean, that two-step playbook, I think, would really solve lots of issues. Listen, genuinely listen, and then explain and respond in with understandable language. And, you know, that's I think that's a you know, very simple two-step strategy to better partnerships. Um, but it also makes me think, and I, um, you know, like the whole process, this whole conversation I'm hearing, now I'm a big Ted Lasso fan, um, but, you know, be curious, not judgmental. How can I be curious to understand what you're saying as opposed to trying to convince you that I'm right, right? There's a big difference and a distinction there. Um, okay, so we've been going at this for a while. I don't want to minimize our ability to have session three. You can all come back and <laughs> you're still smiling. So um, I, I would invite you to let's share last thoughts on this. I, the only piece we didn't get to is I'm going to go back to let's let's put, bring together two of the pieces. Let's go to like the haircut supermarket experience again. But I'm going to invite Miss O'Connor to be a part of that conversation because you're a part of that when you do CBI, which is community based instruction, mm -hmm. right? You're there with a the child interacting with the general public in the exact same way. So we did this at the end of the last session and I thought it was great. So I want you guys as a new perspective, as parents and as an educator, what advice could you give a general member of the public or maybe a family member of a youngster who has really unique needs um, to demonstrate the patience and grace? Like what, what strategy, if you interact with someone in a way that you are not expecting or accustomed to, um, something as simple as, as someone grabbing your arm, that you maybe you're not you don't welcome that touch and that's okay how do we communicate that in a respectful way if you see if someone takes the apple out of your grocery cart <laughs> um right if you're the hairstylist and the student has a significant emotional episode in that moment like how do you respond effectively and so miss prez gave some really great strategies last time if you don't know those, you can go back and listen. That would be... Um, oh, that he's plugging that last episode. Plug. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shameless plug. It was. I'm not afraid to admit it. So let's hear from, from you guys. What would you, what would you, how would you respond to that? Oh, I get to go first. Thanks. I got the eyes over there. Um, I would say just be respectful. Don't, um, you know, 
personal boundaries are things for everybody. So you shouldn't be touching other people that you don't know, regardless of sensitivity issues or not. So keep your hands to yourself. Um, you know, I think just being friendly. If you see a child, let's say hello. And, you know, I've done it in the past where I've been out in the store and I've said hello to a child and the parent's like, oh, I'm sorry. They, you know, they're nonverbal. I was like, oh, great. So then I wave and, you know, there's, there's other ways to interact with children. Um, I say that if there is a situation where you encounter and a child is having a difficult time, um, I, I don't think you have to avoid the situation, but you also don't gawk at the situation either. You know, it, I think it's common if you hear a noise, you're going to glance and you're going to see what it is. Um, and those situations, I've when I've had that happen to me, I glance, are they safe? Are they with somebody? Okay, great. They're good. And then you move on with your day. Um, you know, and one time I do remember I did reach out and I was like, gave the parents a little thumbs up, like, you good? You know, just in case, because they might need something, but then that's it. They got it. It's their child or they're with an adult. They'll handle it and be respectful. Just keep moving on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think if we were to walk into a situation and what I would want to tell kids, parents, like Robert's Robert's different, but he's not scary, you know, and, and don't feel awkward to approach him. Um, he would love to play with kids. He He's such a, a loving, playful child that, you know, don't be afraid to approach that situation. Um, and then again, like you said, like, don't don't gawk, but be understanding. Yeah. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think just a smile, honestly, like a smile goes a long way and not not like a fake like, oh, I understand smile No, like, a, hey, it's cool. It's all good. Like, we're you know, we're having a good time here. I apologize, you know, um, for whatever might have happened. But, you know, just <laughs> for that apple. <laughs> yeah, for that apple or for those rubber bands. Um, but no, I mean, it's OK. Like, you know, don't feel bad. We don't you know, it just, you know, just and a little smile. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Like Robert has got implants, so he's got, you know, he, he looks different. He's got wires coming out of his head. You know, that's not normal in today's society. So if you or your child has questions, I could talk about it all day. So, I mean, <laughs> ask, ask whatever you need to ask. We could use more support and more friends. So, yeah, yeah don't be and afraid. In the school setting, we encourage that as well when our students are interacting with general education students. And sometimes, you know, I get if, if one of the, my students are yelling, the some of the other students are like, whoa, wait, what's happening here? And we're like, it's okay. They're just upset. Just like you got upset before. It's okay. This is just how they communicate their upset. Um, but I also encourage the students to ask us questions. Some of the kids in my class have iPads that they use as communication device. And they're like, oh, he gets to play games? I'm like, no, this is how he speaks. He has a tough time using his words to express us or they're unable to have words. This is how they communicate to me. Um, I've had children ask me about, well, what's that on, on Robert's head? I'm like, oh, that's how Robert hears. These are like his ears. Um, so I think the questions are great. And I think it shows respect and it teaches them empathy to understand what other people are going through. Well, I, I don't I, I don't think I could have wrapped it up better than that. So we're going to leave it there. I'm going to thank um, thank all of you for joining us. I mean, the to demonstrate vulnerability, to come on and talk about your personal experiences, to give us a little insight into your classroom. Uh, I'm truly grateful um, for your willingness to be a part of this conversation. Um, hopefully, you know, we've shared some things here that will help everybody be a little bit more understanding and appreciative that each one of us, each person is different than every other person. And that's what makes the human experience so amazing. Um, and there are ways that we can just support one another, a simple smile, a simple thumbs up, a reassuring look, you know, um, kind words. These are these are things that don't take a whole lot of effort, but really do go a long way. So um, thank you all for joining me. And maybe we'll have uh, episode three. So <laughs> thanks. for Thanks for listening.